Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We're in Wade's office. Wade is here. I, Mike, am here. And then also our distinguished guest. Perhaps our most frequent guest again with this episode. Yes, I'm working on that. Yes, this is a competition between him and Pastor Dobler, and we are happy to foster that kind of... um, that kind of competition. He's here. We're going to talk uh, Martin Luther in the State, which was a paper that he wrote uh, for Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary uh, Symposium. It was 2017. So two kingdoms kind of stuff. We'll see where the We'll see where the conversation goes, and so we're very happy to have him here at the end of our exam week here, the first semester at Wisconsin Lutheran College. Wade, you have grading done? Nope. I do. I know you do. <laughs> Mark, are you done with all Just your... gave one this morning, so that'll take a little time. you got a little more time, so I'm feeling pretty good about myself right now. My last exam was Tuesday, so I've had plenty of time. <laughs> Who'd you pay off? Yeah, that's right. So I didn't. I just let it happen, and they must like me. I don't know. Anyway, um, before we get any further into our free-for-all and main topic, we will have Wade read our disclaimer. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot, so approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because while as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. And that brings us to our free-for-all where, uh, what is it Peter says, where we talk about the pressing issues of the day? I think so. He says something like that. (laughs) And uh, for this free-for-all, we are going to do something a little bit different. We are going to hand it off to a guest to introduce a little bit. We had presented, we had talked at the seminary not too long ago. We were privileged to be asked by some students to come and speak. Uh, Dr. Brown was kind enough to join us. Uh, Ben was able to make it too. Peter was busy. Um, But... Dr. Brown had brought up uh, kind of a point about generations and uh, differences sometimes in their experiences or or how they look at things. And I thought that might be helpful for a free-for-all. And so, Mark, why don't you go ahead and introduce a little bit maybe the thought you brought up at seminary, and then we can talk about it. Yeah, I really just said it in passing when we were talking about something else. But uh, from the middle of the summer till about the middle of September, when I was, I I understand you, you cataloged my broken leg for a while, and one day you said, oh, there was a sighting. I was hobbling around for a while. But I had a chance to listen to past uh, episodes of Let the Bird Fly, not not just ones where I'm in, but I really, so don't, not like, just the good I really, ones. Don't, really don't like to listen to myself, frankly. But but others also. And it, it, it made me think about how much of a fraternity the Wells Ministerium has, uh, what a similar educational background, similar uh, experiences. And um, uh, an elementary teacher had said to me years ago that he kind of envied, <clears throat> excuse me, envied pastors this sense of camaraderie because he didn't feel that 
teachers had at all the same kind of camaraderie. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to live or die by his opinion at the time, but I did think about it. And so, as I listened to some of your ruminations about various things, I, I thought, yeah, you know, we've we've had this quite similar um, school experience, subjects, uh, outlook on ministry, but there are also certain things that probably mark generations differently. I mean. I think in my time at school, I heard stories about the World War II generation, and they had graduation like in April because they had to go to school year-round so that they wouldn't be drafted. And, uh, and others went through the Depression or through the changeover from German. And I think those things do mark us to some degree. So Yeah, I thought. think there's, you know, I, <clears throat> we were talking off-air about my grandfather, um, and uh, I'm fourth generation Wisconsin Synod pastor, and the generation before that was the farmer who called over the first missionary, you know, to to start what eventually became what we know as the Wisconsin Synod. So it's kind of all I know, and uh, it's a blessing and it's a curse, um, as you can imagine. Um, but to speak to uh, that between generations kind of having gone through the same kind of uh, system, it could be a little bit. It, it's annoying when you. I don't mind it that much, but I could see sometimes it could get annoying. I suppose when someone says, "You find out your last name, okay," and then they trace your 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 you know your ancestors, and um, but at the same time, I could speak with my um, uncles, my my brothers, my great uncle, my father, my grandfather, and we had a shared experience, which meant that there was walls that were broken down. And so uh, going away to high school, the same high school my father went to, my grandfather went to, and my great grandfather was um, was a teacher at, as a, as a pastor on, on the campus in Saginaw, Michigan, driving home the hour between Saginaw and Plymouth. And then during the weekend I was there, we just talked and we we had the same type experiences it's it's as if we were peers mm-hmm. right and so it was a different relationship and I, I i don't think i would have had that same relationship with somebody of a different generation let alone if it was my father or not without having both gone through football camp and in the first year of Latin and living in the dorms and all the pranks that you play in the dorms and, and all of those kinds of things. There was, there was a connection there that I, I hold dear as much as it can be frowned upon in the world that, you know, you automatically go to kind of this fraternity kind of, uh, um, elite prep school kind of thing. And that's further, that's very far from the truth of our system. Um, so I hold that dear, even though some people may, uh, you know, raise an eyebrow at that kind of upbringing. That brings a somewhat related question about whether people who have had the experience that you've had, do they have an advantage coming in? And there was quite a, a bitter letter that was written to President Brenner in the 1930s, written by, well, actually, it, it, was, it was a black and red article. And then Brenner got wind of it, where this man who's going to be a pastor did become a pastor, and I think spent his life in the ministry, but felt that the uh, pastor's kids had this extraordinary advantage 
they probably at that time were more likely to come from a house that had fine music and books and an education. But also they knew all the pranks and they were related to people. And, you know, you'd walk into the classroom and the professor would say, oh, are you so-and-so's, you know, grands? They must have bugged you sometimes. Huh? Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah. And, 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 they, and he said, well, we know that they have all the advantages and, and they get kind of special treatment because of that. And so I asked around from my generation, I asked people who were, had various kinds of family histories, and some of them who have a history like yours said, no, it's worse because they know all about you already and they hold you unspoken to a different kind of a standard. I always felt like a wannabe. You know, how do I get into this fraternity? Uh, I have to at least kind of try to marry into it, I guess, because I don't have all that all that background and those stories. And after a while, I even wonder sometimes whether I maybe was sometimes um, less sanctified than I could have been and should have been because this would be my entry card to get in with the guys, you know, so to speak. And I think if, you, if, 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 you're, if it's your experience, it's, um, it's like the family business. Oh, for sure. And um, in a lot of different ways. I mean, and, and, and in good ways, too. I just this is kind of a side note, but uh, living in a rural area my first 12 years uh, of being a pastor, um, you know, the kids were it was a family business. The kids were there and, and we didn't have you know, we, I didn't go to work and then come back to work. It was not a nine to five job. We were just kind of always there. And you grew up into into this thing called the church and the Lutheran parsonage. And, and you know, to, to your broader point, there was a long time where I wish I had a different last name, not because I wasn't proud of my family, but um, I wish that I was. It, it was. it was a little bit sexier to be somebody who was a first-generation pastor. Um, you know, in a, in a, in a way that I never thought that, <laughs> you know, being on this side of it, right. You know, there was, there was, there was something about, um, there was something unique about a person who said, I am going to choose to be a pastor where in my situation, I chose to be a pastor. Yes, but it was the family business. And so I was jealous of those people who seemed to be more committed. Now, they probably weren't. It was probably just in my mind. But there was a time where I didn't, I, I, I wish that I was not who I was and didn't have a last name. So I, I think you can go, you could, the grass is always greener on the other side, I suppose. But now I'm, I'm, I'm you know, in, in my little bit more wisdom, just fine with what it is and it is what it is. And um, my background and my last name has opened more doors than it's closed, but it's closed doors too. Sure, sure. And there was a time where I said, can you just let me be me? You know, judge me for who I am. And then I'd realize, oh, wait a minute, don't judge me for who I am. <laughs> That's not good either. Um, so th- there is both, I, I've thought about this quite a bit, you know, from both perspectives. Yeah. Well, and so Wade, you came with an even different kind of experience than the two of us did. Sure. I mean, I was at Martin Luther College, our ministerial college, uh, you know, having been confirmed Lutheran uh, New Year's Eve of the year before. <clears throat> I, w- I would say, you know, it, I guess if we're talking common experience and institutional-wise, I, I would say I had a similar experience to Mark of, you know, well, you kind of want to understand the inside game or, you know, the connection that, that some others have across the the family lines. I, I would say on the <clears throat> plus side... I've probably been able to 
kind of do my own thing maybe a little bit more because I've not had the expectation. Um, I don't mean this to sound a negative way, and and I, I think this is a not just a Wisconsin Senate thing, but you see this in Missouri Senate or any church body that has common ethnic roots and a common history, and it's very tied to its history. Um, but I do think it's in, an interesting dynamic, um, having come from outside, of when we talk theology or doctrine or practice or history, um, I find that the people I'm talking with oftentimes have a whole lot more mixed up in that stuff than I do, you know, so it... Um, what do you mean mixed up, enmeshed? Yeah, I, I think, you know, so if we're talking about something and uh, um, and someone's grandpa maybe wrote something and I'm saying, I don't think that was the clearest and I don't know that was their grandpa or that was their uncle <clears throat> or whoever on a connected side or you're looking back at our church history and you go, so there was this thing and, you know, well, let's use the example that's way back so I don't offend anybody, but, you know, Kaler Peeper, Protestant, you know, all this. I'm guessing there's a generation where those talks could get really layered beyond simply, well, what was the best doctrinal stance on that? What was the best pastoral stance on that? And you had things tied into um, that. So I think uh, 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 what I'm trying to get at is I think it's interesting that as Lutherans, right, Lutheranism begins with a questioning of institutions. Um, but I think in the American Lutheran synods that are the former synods of the Synodical Conference, our institutions are in many ways tied up with our family heritage, our cultural heritage. Um, and, you know, I didn't have the experience of a prep school um, and I'm also did seminary and afterwards in the internet age. <clears throat> but I mean, there's definitely things that, you know, when, when Mike or others will talk about family history, uh, if I can use your grandpa as an example, Mike, um, kind of the Wells boom with missions, home missions, you know, that's the Wells boom with home missions. And so to me, I go, okay, that was the Wells boom with home missions. Well, for Mike, Right, I'm guessing there's all sorts of stuff. It's is your grandpa. This is, and you know, it, it's just interesting to me the dynamics that sometimes play out there differently there. And that's not a negative. I think in many ways, it helps the church body. Uh, I mean, you look at the vitality of some of our institutions that other church bodies don't have any longer. I think part of it is because there is that um, so much wrapped up in how we value it, but. Uh, I don't know if I'm making sense. but Well, yeah, I think you are. I, I, I was wondering if you came to uh, MLC and you'd just been a Catholic of, you know, a matter yeah, of months. No, I, mean, be, I, was, I mean, that would be a, a point in your favor, wouldn't it, generally? For the guys, they'd say, well, this is great. This is a convert. Our class was very heavy of big groups of people coming from certain schools. So I would say, and Mike, you can correct me, if, it was probably senior year or junior year, maybe before I was really talking to you or maybe even some of the MLS guys were talking to a lot of the prep guys in a meaningful way beyond joking around. I, th I think there was... Well, I, and I, we were the first year after amalgamation of the... when For those who are non-inside baseball here... And you're, you're playing the game now. You yeah, know? Northwestern College became Martin Luther College and the teachers and pastors were now trained to the same thing. Um, and so 
I mean, we had people who still were very much, we shouldn't be at MLC, Martin Luther College, we should be at Northwestern. And so I think the institutions people came from became, it was even heightened, the importance of that. So I don't I don't know. Uh, I think it took a while before I got to know well a lot of the people. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of that's probably just some immaturity in general for 18, 19-year-old boys, too, um, you know, um, but... It was never an issue with faculty or anything. No, no. Not that we could see. <laughs> <laughs> I you mean, it's, it's it's hard to say because they also had that as the pro- what they went through, and they probably, I mean, you can't really look at some of these guys, even now that I'm in my 60s, I can't even look at them out in their churches or retired or whatever and not remember what they were like as a court honor, you know? And, and you say you get over that stuff, and I think you do, but you don't entirely forget it. I'm just thinking that there were probably a half dozen guys in my time that had come from somewhere else, from Missouri, or actually we had a, not me, but a couple of classes in front of me, had a person who had been Pentecostal for a while. And so one day, just to entertain and amuse everybody, he spoke in tongues for a while in class and said, hey, you can turn it on, turn it off. We tended to look at those people as being probably those who had really chosen to come out of conviction. They didn't drift in because they were in the family or in the church. And for me, I found out that once, even though I wasn't a preacher's kid, once I was in the system where I really couldn't go to Wisco anymore and I couldn't go to the local high school and I was in, it took more courage to get out than to stay. And I quit school for a year, 1970, Vietnam War was going, and I got my draft lottery number, and who knows what I would have done. Um, But that was really um, um, an unusual thing to do then. And I I wrote a piece a couple months ago about uh, Cap Elke, who quit after college to go to the Peace Corps, and then he was shot by that uh, sniper in, in Austin. Jeez. Yeah, it's it's quite a story. And the, the, but the but the larger story is all of the misgivings. You know, he just wanted to do something different, but he was a third generation pastor guy, and you know some of the mail he got from the faculty about how he was not going to be touching as many people's lives, and he had to th- sort all that through. Once you're in the system, it took more courage to get out than to just keep kind of being brought along. Yeah, I maybe I had a different experience just a little bit that we grew up in California in a small church that was it wasn't really a mission church by then anymore but so coming to the Midwest and 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 where you I mean I didn't even know I didn't go to school with any other Lutherans I'm sure they were there but I didn't I didn't know anybody we're in a small church and none of the kids from my parish went to my school and so did feel like an outsider a little bit and didn't didn't really I didn't even know we had parochial schools I mean, it just never dawned on me. I thought that was just a Roman Catholic thing. Um, and so I was sort of out of it. And then when I, you know, we moved to the Midwest and then I started to get into the high school, college, seminary system, you're kind of thrust into it and, and you, you're you like, this is this is a little bit different. Um, and uh, I can see the good and the bad of that. I mean, there, it's good that, you know, uh, Mark, you and I could sit down and we could have a conversation without knowing each other, right? I mean, we, we have a common experience and have common um, common people we know, and, and that's a beautiful thing. So maybe the next question that you're asking is what would be the differences then from generations? And I, I think you're probably more apt to see that from your your view of what do you what do you see as a difference between, well, it's not just the difference between Wade and I and you, but... Wade and I and the guys coming out of seminary, it's, it's been enough time where they're different. It's been enough different. time, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, uh, what are those differences? Are they, 
are they too big to overcome kind of stuff? Well, I, I can go back to, I, I did a project on John W. O'Brenner's mail, it was all presidential stuff, and he had to uh, speak and, and, and respond to a bunch of pastors who had no money during the Depression. Uh, either they lost their church or they were in their church, but they couldn't get paid, and they didn't know what they were going to live on. There, wasn't, there weren't the safety nets that there are now. And the people who came through that had a very different sense about how to spend money or not spend money than, than the next group, how frugal they had to be and how materialistic every generation after that was coming. I think there was a sense of the guys who came through in the 1940s and 50s with, a, with the Missouri debate who felt that uh, they had to learn all that stuff from the inside out. And they, they, they had to make choices. I mean, they, they um, I remember Professor Schitzi saying to me one time that he went to a Senate convention not knowing if he would have a job when he came back, what was going to happen to the structure and the, what decisions would affect him. And district conventions, Senate conventions were really momentous occasions. Now they're just mostly dog and pony shows where everything's been decided and people can communicate in five different ways. But, but and, and, and he told me, Professor Schitzi said once that they went to a Senate convention, but he and another guy slept in their car because they couldn't afford to get a, a motel room, but they wanted to go so much. So, so my 60s generation must have looked very decadent and not very committed. Someone who did a study on this said that we had so, the largest classes that ever came through Mech one, but we also had the highest percentage of losses in the first 10, 15 years of ministry. So he wonders whether there was more hiding out from the Vietnam War than we would want to admit. Uh, about 1970, there was a, um, a some kind of Episcopal seminary out east got really noticed as a as a draft dodge, and you know guys would go in there and they'd get their their deferment. And President Toppy at Watertown wrote and says, they would never say that about our system with all these years of German and Latin and Greek and Hebrew. Who would want go through that to dodge the draft? Well, it's the draft. It's the war. Plus, the thing he didn't say was, yeah, you had all those languages, but you didn't have to be very good at them. It wasn't, it wasn't that you had to have a 3.0 or something. In fact, I was still told by a relative in the early 2000s, a D-minus will still get you in the pulpit. That was kind of a slogan. That's a, that's a consistent. So, um, you know, just, just the thing that, that um, I was thinking especially that are different, is different. We had one preaching teacher, I won't mention his name, who absolutely would not allow any of us to use the personal pronoun. Ever. He called it the perpendicular pronoun. He didn't like it sticking up above the rest of the letters. And he would kind of almost stand on his head not to say I about something. And how different is that today when uh, pastors seem not to talk not just about their family, their children, their trucks, you know, all of that, but even about their weaknesses, their failings. It's really different. It's, it's a much more of a, I don't know, self-examined examined kind of, I don't know. Well, I would like uh, to ask you this then, uh, you know, uh, what, what does your generation then think of ours and, and uh, the guys coming out of seminary right now? Is it bewilderment? Is it curiosity? Is it, what is it? Oh, I think my sense is that my generation is less skeptical about the younger generation than they were previously. Um, Wade and I have had our friendly rivalries about theme and parts preaching versus not. I, I personally find great hope when I hear the preacher knowing 
where he's going and that he knows he's on the third of four sections. And I don't know. I mean, um, and that's just me. I, I, I will still feel guilty if I don't have that kind of a set outline, like I didn't really do my work. And, of course, the more balanced and, and onomatopoetic or whatever, the better. Um, that's that's a difference. I mean, I, I find I, I had a stage when I was here just about the time of the amalgamation that um, I, I guess, and some other people at this school were pretty ready targets for some people who were unhappy with things in the Synod, and we were one of them. And I see much, much less of that animosity, distrust maybe, uh, that there used to be. Uh, we would be reminded that we had never been um, created by a synod resolution, so therefore we did not have the right to exist. I mean, I still think there are probably people in the woods who think that. I don't think that's as popular to say out loud anymore as it used to be. So speaking just for myself, there's just a tremendously better relationship between seminary students and us and you know, MLC, it's probably good that there was a little distance for a while because the rivalry was probably not always healthy. And it wasn't so much the athletes, it was everybody else. <laughs> they were pretty much just athletes and grown up about all this and shook hands. And I, I do think it's interesting to look at, and I think, you know, you, you bring out, and we shouldn't linger too long on the free for all, but I think there is a main topic in some of this at some point. Um, but I do think... A lot of us, when we when we go through, defines a lot of our ministry for the rest of our ministry. So, um, you know, what is seen as the big issue, or what was the big issue for the people teaching us, really does leave an impression for a while after. Oh, yeah. And you know, we, I think, you know, the break with the Missouri Senate is a is a great example of one that really loomed not only over the people who came out during that time. But the people who then had the professors who this was a very formative thing that they went through, and I think that would be a big shift to where I think people coming out now in our generation, Mike, um, that was not quite as formative. And none of this stuff is that formative for me because I, you know, I look at it and I go, okay, I don't know anybody who was involved in that, you know, outside of colleagues. But, um, but you can see, I think now. Um, probably more guys in town getting to know the Missouri guy down the street. Um, the synods actually talking, you know, the two presidents of the synods and others have been meeting. And, uh, but, uh, but I think you could find all kinds of concerns of what, what was the big things when people went through, uh, the guys, I would say a decade before us, when you had kind of the big, um, evangelism push. I mean, we always have an evangelism push, hopefully, but, um, you know, the, the, the character of that, right. When, when we're at conference and they're talking, you can kind of tell, oh, they had these people at that time on this mm -hmm. thing. I think the theme and parts with preaching would be a good example, but I think that is helpful for keeping in mind the extent to which, uh, these things shape us based on when we go through that we can have great commonalities, but also um, maybe different fears and different ambitions based on when we came through. And uh, yeah, I, I in the an uncompromising gospel when I get to kind of the lessons for today, one of the things I note in there is 
one of the reasons the fights could be so bitter after Luther's death is that these guys knew each other. They right. went to school together. Right. They had the shared experience. And so when there was different concerns or fears or things they're reacting to, it could exacerbate it. And I think that's something that can play out in both ways here as we talk about stuff is sometimes we have so much in common that we can look and say, um, well, why is that that person's thing? Or what? Or that sounds different. And and uh, and so it, it can maybe be a two-edged sword. I, I will say, um, for someone who came from outside the system, one of the best things I've had from the system is to be in touch with my classmates. And we are all, in large part, still in touch. I um, just started a Telegram group a little while back, and most of them are in that now huh. for messaging. Um, as far as I know, we haven't lost a guy yet, by the way, either, which I think we're the only class that hasn't that's been out as long as we've been. Um, so as much as sometimes as an outsider, I'd go, "What? what is going on with these people? Or what are these acronyms? Or why is that? why am I supposed to know that last name? Uh, and I, I mean, I actually have had to almost argue with someone that I wasn't related with them before because there was a similar last name. And I'd say, no, <clears throat> you know, like I, my mom does genealogy. There's no, you know, we're not related. Um, but I, I think there, there can be a great benefit and camaraderie that, um, that comes from, uh, from that too. So, um, yeah, I think it's true in the parish too. So, uh, coming to, uh, the parish and, uh, seeing what was important to the people that were at that time in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, and what was important to me. And it kind of dawned on me that they had some blind spots, um, and so do I. And I don't know what they are, because otherwise they wouldn't be blind spots. But I, I kept repeating this over and over again after after I, it dawned on me that not only the blind spot, blind spot thing, but to say... I have a feeling that God gives each generation like a big problem and maybe in his graciousness, um, he makes it just one or two big problems. And so think of the battle of the Bible. Um, you know, in our little corner of the world, we can say we won. I, I think so. I mean, we're not, you know, we didn't have Seminex, we didn't, and even Missouri Synod has pulled itself from that and survived. You know, we can debate about all the results of that, but in our little world, we we were victorious. Now there's other battles, and I can remember saying to some of my older people in a public way, not in a personal way, but you were you were aware of that, and you knew which side you were on. I would like you to have the same passion for this issue um, and say this is this is a, an important issue to me and to this generation right now and um, not to look down upon it or ignore it, but to say it's our turn now. And so it, it, you learn from that, and I think it helped me not judge that previous generation to say, why don't they get it? Well, you know, they they did some pretty darn good things in their time. And am I going to be, when I'm in my 60s and 70s, am I going to... Um, I don't think you're going to live that long. Well, I, I, there's 100-year-old genes in this, uh, in this family. <laughs> um, I hope I don't. But um, that will I be as open to that generation and their battle and support them uh, as as I wanted the generation before me to, to be 
supportive of me because when the, when when another generation comes up and says this is the issue of the day this is important it's implied that the previous generation ignored this or was too dumb to figure it out or or was not wise enough to see it coming right sometimes and, yeah. you know and so and and that's there there is that offense there and there can be hurt feelings and there can be um, maybe even a pushback and say, hold on, are you saying that we uh, constantly got this? Were you saying that we were wrong for 125 years at this parish? You know, and I say, hold on now that you had your you had that that time there that that was such a, uh, a, a significant time because all time is significant. And you did this battle and and proud of you for that. And thank you for winning. Here is my generation's issue. And just give me a hearing you know, judge it on the, the character of whether you think it's worthy to fight for or not instead of, well, that's not my fight kind of thing. Yeah, you mentioned outreach, and I think that was where I, I, I heard this a couple of times, that uh, the older the older group from me uh, occasionally complained to me that my generation thought we had invented evangelism. You know, like it didn't, I, 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 I forget, and he, uh, one of the people from an older generation talked to me about something I had said, and it wasn't that he disliked what I said. He liked what I had said, that it had always been there, and, you know, maybe people are trying some new methods, but uh, there still were people that went, pastors went door to door, and they would meet their neighbors, and they would do this, and before there was ever a program. And that annoyed them that, let's not use any names, but certain people ev- invented evangelism. But there, I think it's, you know, you, you've used the phrase, I've heard it on, on some of the podcasts about each generation having its crisis. I also think that the pendulum sometimes swings back as far the other way as it used to. So we got quite um, scared and kind of not necessarily isolated, but, but cautious. Uh, if you had professors that lived through um, the steps up to the split, this was intensely personal to many of them. And the fight is kind of staggering when you sit back and look at it because nobody quite fights the way brothers do. And you can watch brothers fight and think, one of them is going to kill the other one. And then, you know, the next day they're fine. Well, this hurt them deeply, what was happening here. And so the, the, the message that was given to the guys that were in school the next six, eight years after the split was, the safest thing is to not do anything with anybody. And... Um, I heard a later conversation about whether or not um, we should open a joint Missouri-Wisconsin Synod grade school tournament that the local pastor could give a prayer. And someone said, isn't that kind of picky? And he said, you have no idea what it was like coming out. It was almost a McCarthy kind of a thing. You could be accused of guilt by association if you were too willing to do this. And and so there were guys in, in my time then who would say, well, by then I was 18. 20 years later, and they would say, I'm going to go out and go visit the ministerial association and say hi when they invite me. But often their story was, well, yeah, I walked in, they were nice to me. The next thing was they had me scheduled for the Lenten preaching <laughs> go around. And, <laughs> and then when I when I say I can't do that, then I'm in as bad a shape as I yeah, was before. Yeah. I'm still that, that narrow-minded Wells guy. You know, they're, they're not any different. Um, and sometimes I think we have the most to fear or we think we do from our own brothers out in the ministry. Will so-and-so think that I'm too liberal or, 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 or unprincipled or something? And they're the, they're the critic we're most concerned about sometimes. Well, and I think that, and I, we should probably wrap this up to get the main topic pretty soon, but um, I think that's an important point too, and I think that's not something that's even just Lutherans, but I think pastors in general is um, 
there can be a real temptation to pastor to what fellow pastors will think oh, yeah. more than pastoring to your people. And I think that that's something uh, that's helpful for all of us who have been in the parish or are in the parish to sometimes remember. Uh, you're called to your people. And that being said, you want to be thoughtful. I always really appreciated when someone in my circuit or area if they were going to be doing something that I might get questions about or I might right, that might impact my parish, when they would bring it up in front of stuff, you know, hey, I'm going to run this idea by you guys. There is, it's very important, I think, to, to think of your brothers when you're doing stuff. But at the same time, too, yeah, if if we find ourselves handcuffed because, well, what will, what will so-and-so think if I pastor this person and, and whatever this, the situation might be, I think that can, because the people you care about is whose opinions you care the most about, and I think that can play in with the relationships we have. Uh, as I said at the beginning, I think there's an episode in this, so we should probably note some of this to come back to, and hopefully Peter can uh, remind us, but I think we probably, when we do so, we can kind of maybe set a bit of a framework to avoid too much inside baseball for our listeners from outside our circles, um, but maybe with that we can make our way into the main topic. I would just close by remembering something that Professor Lovren said to us, and I suppose this had to do with fellowship, but it's broader. He said, if, if brothers in the ministry agree on the principles, then we should allow them to be free to disagree and make their own judgments about individual cases that are hard. And that's something I both wonderfully see happen at times, and I've also seen it where someone else well, frankly, I've seen it from people who live three districts and 2,000 miles away, have a better concept of what I ought to be doing than I do when I'm right here. Right, and I think that can be a danger. Yeah, and that, well, it's a danger, and it's, it's painful, too. Yeah. yeah, a little charity goes a long way. Yeah. Well, we'll wrap up the free-for-all here, and we'll come back to our main topic. us to our main topic, which is a discussion based off of a paper that Mark gave at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary for their 2017 Reformation Symposium. And uh, the title was Martin Luther and the State, but it kind of gives a nice walk through uh, the two kingdoms, I guess, even somewhat predating Luther, but then as Luther saw it, and then how Lutherans have wrestled with that concept as a whole. Um, throughout their history, but especially, I would say, in the American setting where you also have imported into that uh, non-Lutheran views of church and state, um, but Christian views, obviously, uh, perhaps sometimes caricatures of even the Lutheran view, um, different emphases within the two kingdoms. So a paper that kind of says, well, how how have we navigated this and maybe how can we navigate it for the future? But maybe, Mark, if you want to start us off, any background of the paper, what you were hoping to do, anything like that? Well, I'm really not sure that I gave them what they wanted, and I say that they weren't unhappy, but I, maybe it just wasn't what they expected, and part of that was because the the respondent um, to my paper, who a uh, good friend of mine for a long time, he kind of gave the impression, I didn't know this was paper was going to go into all these directions. He didn't disagree, but uh, uh, first of all, of the four topics, this is, of course, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, so... 
the other three topics were, I think there was, first of all, much more that Luther said about all of these topics, but there, it was also less clear that there was a chronology and a development, or at least the presenters, I don't think, emphasized that. Um, I'd been warned, and probably you have been too, not to play the, you know, the plus game, Ewald plus game with This is Luther and just pull quotations with no context, whatever. In fact, I've somehow lost my copies of of, of the plus, and I'm kind of glad because it was too easy a crutch. Um, I'm trying to look if mine is over to yeah, your right or yeah, not. Yeah, well, I, I probably don't... won't be borrowing it. But, but um, So I thought with the issue of Luther and the state, it appears that his thinking did develop somewhat, and there are good reasons for that. Not everybody agrees with that, but most people see some change. Um, and then also, I, I never teach a class on Luther. So I'm not steeped in, I mean, since I was at seminary, I'm not steeped in all the history and all that. But I teach a course in American Christianity. And when we do a, you know, really fast flyby on the Reformations for a day or two, which, and of course, these are not even theology minors. Some of them aren't even hardly, I don't know if they know if they're Christian or not. How do you give a sense of these, of, of all these Reformations happening? And one of the topics I want to be sure I talk about is, uh, each group's understanding of the relationship they would have with the church, the, the Catholic Church and the and and the and the government had worked hand in hand for centuries. Many cultures had done that. Each of them depended on the other. You have Calvin with his sense of more of a holy commonwealth, and his well, every Lutheran author says it was a pretty miserable attempt in Geneva. Some Calvinists kind of like it, where church and state operating. You have and then you have the um, uh, the radical Reformation where they just wanted nothing to do with it, and then by contrast. We practice the two kingdoms, and that's the. I found that the hardest uh, kind of practice to explain quickly to students. It seems very inconsistent, and um, I think it looks like, as some critics of the Lutheran view said later on, they saw it as an, an a departure from our responsibility in the world. And so I was glad to get the topic because I wanted to go back and read more into some of these things that I've been talking about. So I I did talk about Luther and try to develop what he said um, chronologically, and I would say in response to things that were happening to him in terms of the peasant war and things like that. But then where it was taken and how it developed in Germany that um, um, the, the, his view of church and state allowed people to say, well, I can just do what I want in the state. And, you know, Shearer's argument that this left people with no sense of moral responsibility. You know? and I didn't know a lot about that, but I read enough to know. Yeah, I, I mean, he gets it named after him as the, you know, the, um, the I mean, it, it, an interesting book to read, uh, and it was the early, like, definitive book on the Third Reich because he wrote, he's in Germany as a journalist, and he writes early on, but yeah, so William Scherer, uh, it's called the Scherer Myth, um, that there's kind of, if, you, if you've ever seen, like, an evolution chart where you have the little monkey and then it becomes an ape and then a human, if you imagine um, a German and uh, they've got their arm down on their side and then like there's a generation of just the right arm slowly raising into it. I, I'm, I stopped my arm from, from illustrating here in the room. Um, but kind of that there's this direct evolutionary line from Luther to Hitler um, that, that clearly is not the case, right? That's been de debunked. But um, Shire is one who really popularizes this view that basically Luther um, instilled quietism into the Germans right. and into the German churches. Uh, and so he, he makes a, a, a fairly clear line between the two. Yeah, so I tried to get enough of him 
And then enough of the responses to that in the paper to show that, well, and you were helpful on that with your Legia article about that, you know, there was there was a form of resistance and there were pockets that resisted Hitler. I don't think it's a real great record, but it was it was no, it, it could have been better. That's it, for sure. Yeah, but but it was still there. But then my interest was mostly the American picture and, you know, how thoroughly, thoroughly Calvinistic we are. Um, you know, there's the joke that in in uh, America, even the even the Catholics are Protestant. And you, you could also say in America, even the Lutherans are Calvinists in a way. And I think where you find frustration with this is when you have very fine, consecrated lay people who say, why don't we do more? Why don't we do something like try and shut down that dirty bookstore in town? Or why don't we join with these people to, you know, if we're not going to make them Christians, can't we at least make them more moral and have a better society? And the 90s were just a heyday for this, late 80s and 90s with the Moral Majority and Christian Coalition. Yes. and. And I think a lot of American Lutherans were really, really drawn to that. And I think you, you see American Lutherans that are still really drawn to that in the form of, and I'm not taking a political stance, so no one get too upset with me, but like a Ted Cruz type, Mike Pence type Republican or branch of the GOP of this um, legislating morality or uh, a Christian activity in the state that sees, in some sense, a Christian America we're trying to save or preserve. Right, and and so I would I would confront this sometimes with with students here, who are better versed on this, but more often in parishes, where uh, people just had a strong sense of this, and then Lutheranism seems so uninvolved and quietistic, and I really like uh, things that Robert Benna and. Um, uh, uh, Mark Knoll have said about this. Knoll is an outsider. There's some things about Lutheranism he just cannot understand. Um, Benna has been greatly disappointed with the ELCA. On some, I think he's in the NALC. He's now. been on a tear lately with, uh, I believe, writing for, is it First Things? Or yeah, he's been writing. Yeah, he's been. yeah, but he, he, has, he has written about the paradoxical vision that, and I like what he said, that both Calvinists and um, Catholics both are, or I'll say both, I shouldn't say that, both both liberals and conservatives are absolutely convinced that, that their view is God's view. And both of them really expect that the government should line up with this. And, and Lutherans believe that God's hand is there and that he rules both kingdoms, but in a more paradoxical way. And so we have these, these co apparent contradictions. And, you know, the one we were taught in school was that uh, the judge in the morning in court grants a divorce to a couple because they have grounds legally, but then at night he votes at the church meeting to excommunicate them because their 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 grounds are not biblical, and that looks very contradictory and kind of um, cowardly, I think, to a lot of a lot of Americans who would like their country to be a better place. And I still use that sometimes in 110 as a discussion question, and, and there are people who will be very bothered by that. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think it's, it's obviously a little bit of an oversimplification, but it, it really highlights on this, and people will say, well, how can you be for this and be against this there? And, um, you know, nobody's going to do the business of preaching the gospel if, if the church doesn't. Other people will be trying to reform society and punish people. But So I had all these things in mind when I was writing about this, and what I was surprised at was the number, you talk about how things change, the number of people in the, in, in the group of pastors at the symposium who were asking questions about to what degree might the church get involved in helping the society, not because they have a political aim, but because they just want to help. And what if you are in a really poor neighborhood and you can do something? And, and uh, I, again, the point somewhat came out that I think we should try to avoid being judgmental to someone who's 
ministering in a very different context than we are, where people really are, you know, just terribly poor and have no advocate. And can the church, not just individuals, but can the church as church uh, be helpful? Or do we always stay outside? And I think this plays into kind of what we talked about in the free-for-all, too, with depending on what someone's experience has been. I think that's a a place where there's a big generational gap between um, those coming out of college now or in the last 10 years. And I would say even my generation and older of because within um, especially mainline Protestantism in America, you had the social gospel where such an emphasis was placed on social issues that ironically the gospel sort of got lost as forensic justification, as absolution. Uh, There can be a nervousness about there you know, that we probe that. But then if you read the Gospels, right, we would probably say, yeah, church and Christians can probably be concerned about the poor. That's probably okay. But I think this shows how we filter these things through um, our experience, and I think uh, that's important for us to wrestle with. But it also gets at, um, I think, interestingly, and, and this can be another episode I'm going to take us on a tangent, but, you know, we—, we we take from Luther what we want to take from Luther, and I always find it interesting in ethics when we go through Althaus on the ethics of Martin Luther, and Althaus was not for his day a liberal <clears throat> theologian. I mean, in America, I mean, European conservatives in politics, theology, anything are American liberals. I mean, that's just the way it is. But, um, you know, Luther on economics and Luther on the poor is not American Christianity, like conservative Christianity uh, type view of thing and I have the students you know usually read and react to Luther says well what if you give to a poor person and he wastes the money and asks for more and Luther says well give him more <laughs> and uh, you know it's uh, that's just an illustration of even with the two kingdoms the church was very involved with poverty that in fact the tr- the common chest is something that Protestantism that Wittenberg starts so I don't want to go too far down there but it is interesting to see how these ideas get filtered and what comes down and what doesn't, and can show how the two kingdoms can be interpreted based on someone's context. But. Yet I would say that, to be fair, how, however much Luther's thinking developed on that and how much we go back to it, he could not have envisioned a kind of a two-kingdom structure that we have in America. And that oh, I would of, agree with that. Yeah, I mean, so I, th- I, I think there always was more of a mix and right I would, from the start. And I would say, yeah, what what is taking place there, even in helping the poor, in Luther's day would have been church and government working together because um, even the common chest is also managed by the city council or you know yeah it's not a, a pure church thing and I think that's I think he couldn't have you know he couldn't have envisioned the, the radical separation of church and state we have in America and I also think he'd be extremely sad to see the state church as it developed in Germany as well. Oh, no question. But then I think this is also our history. I think Missouri and Wisconsin Lutherans way back, I mean, talking <coughs> even pre-1900, they, I think, saw themselves, that the, the, they were most secure in their own uh, position by being as little involved in the government as they could be. I mean, even to the point where I'm not sure they all saw themselves always as Americans. And I cited, I've cited this other places, but there's this illustration that I think um, uh, Grebner, Theodore Grebner's father, August, gave where he said, he said, the Christian in the world is like a person who's riding in a train car, and there's another train car in a parallel track where there's a fight going on. And he says, well, you can see the fight, and you can be horrified at it. In the end, it's none of your business. And th- 
and and then I think World War One kind of broke that all apart because now we're we're going to force to be better Americans here and speak English and be in, more involved in the culture, and then the Scouts become more popular and it becomes popular to be in the military and be a good soldier, and so then that was obscured a little bit. So now we're trying to figure out well how much can I be in that that culture, and then. In the 1950s and 60s, Missouri Synod had mission affirmations which really blurred the line between church and state. So Wisconsin reacted by saying, nothing, nothing. And I'll let you go in a second, Mike, but there's one, I guess you could call it an article in the black and red, um, carefully worked out with the, with the faculty advisor, the Synod. And that was the, the student newspaper of Northwestern College. Yeah, that was the magazine of Northwestern College. And Carlton Toppy was a prolific writer, was the president of the college and edited it. I mean, he tried to censor it kind of, I guess, when things got bad. But there was one article that said, here a listing of all the functions of the church beyond preaching the gospel, and truth and purity, administering the sacraments rightly, and the rest of the two pages were totally blank. So that we had no business doing any of that at all. Now, I think that's changed quite a bit even on the local church level where people will be out there more and don't draw that line as much. But that was an understandable reaction to another way that, that Mother Missouri had kind of confused us and let us down. Well, and I, I think that, you know, that experience in Germany, that it was so different, as you mentioned, with the Missouri, it's, it, it's ingrained in at least for some religious reasons that they were coming over, at, at least the, the first Missourians and not so much the economic reasons that many in the Wisconsin state were coming over for. Uh, it's interesting to see, too, um, I had a paper I did for the Lutheran Historical Conference on the, the Bennett Law in Wisconsin. and um, So we're talking like 1888 to 1891 or so that this happens, and um, Horde gets elected Republican governor of Wisconsin, and he wants um, to have... Some subjects in every grade school in English, uh, you know, that this should be part of assimilation because there's a concern that Wisconsin's becoming the Germany of the Northwest. <coughs> and uh, the Wisconsin Synod really comes out hard against this. And in fact, it's one of our most ecumenical movement, uh, moments. Yes. We're meeting with the Missouri Synod and with the Roman Catholics, German Catholics, that is, uh, in opposition to this law. And I, my favorite part of it is um, you know, Wells and Missouri got together and voted out the Republicans, if you could just imagine that in 2018. Uh, but the interesting thing in reading, and I, I read just everything I could find that was put out by the synods at this time about this, is they're very much expressing American ideals in how they address this, freedom of religion, um, you know, freedom of conscience, uh, freedom of speech. All these things get tied into it. So, so you see um, there's aspects of America that are very important and are recognized as being uh, useful for the life and work of the church, even as the Germans have come over. But then on other things, there's a real nervousness of getting too involved um, with American, I don't want to say ideals, but what it is to be in America and and uh, that oh, what's a what good way to say this? I'm not going to offend anybody. I think every every age of church history in uh, in America has the things where you look at it and you go, see, this is what it meant. This is what two kingdoms in America meant for them. 
because of the context they were in, not just religiously, but socially and culturally and economically. And economic background is an interesting one to think about, too. Um, and, I mean, you look at the liturgical changes or the changes in language in our publications that happened with World War One and World War Two. Well, it's hardly like we sat down in the Bible and found a verse that said, you should, you know, do some practices that are more like American Protestantism and you should use English more. Um, there's always something to what we latch on about what it is to be American uh, that tells us a lot about ourselves, too. And I think that that, um, you know, we could get to two kingdoms, for instance, with school choice. Uh, Wisconsin has vouchers for private school if you're in Milwaukee, Racine, and now they've taken that statewide. Um Mark, it's probably fair to say about 60 years ago that would have been unthinkable. I mean, there's fights about milk money, if I'm remembering. Yeah, well, when you see uh, that paper talks about how really very uh, rigid sound is kind of a bad word, very, very black and white view of this and taking two cents per day per child for the Wisconsin State you know, program to make sure the school kids had milk was an incursion into... <coughs> The, the the sphere of the church and and um, you know President Kowalki at Northwestern said uh, we believe in the absolute separation of church and state which is exactly the term that John Kennedy used in 1960 when he had the debate in Houston about the ministerial you know the uh, mostly Baptist pastors down there and he was convincing him he was not going to allow the his religion to interfere into the state and then there's a very specific event that happens first by the government in 1965 to be willing to offer more federal aid to schools, and then Wisconsin's reaction to this. And it, I mean, it really is an about face where Wisconsin says there are certain areas of life where there are overlapping compelling interests. In other words, both the church and the state has have some areas of compelling interest and that happens in schools. And so therefore we were beginning, gonna to begin to start taking aid as long as it did not compromise um, our, our, what we teach, and that's actually not been such a big problem. A bigger problem really has been, which they talked about, was that this was going to destroy the stewardship of our churches. Once we get free money, we're going to always take free money. And I loved it. There was a, this is in 1967, and, and it was a pretty powerhouse committee that drafted this, but then there was a thoughtful response, not necessarily disagreement, but just caution. And one of the cautions says, we certainly hope that you won't use the specious language where the aid is being given to the families rather than to the school. And of course, what happens with school choice here is that they count heads the third Friday of September, and they give that much money, and the parents don't even watch the money go by. And, and I, I just can't imagine how they would react to what we've bought into now compared to how cautious we were then. And... Um, and I remember us having a, a conversation about this in Watertown with Professor Scharf because we had the, the uh, what was so-called the Brookfield case, or a number, I don't know if you heard that, but a bunch of members. I remember you mentioning it. Well, a bunch of, a bunch of members in Brookfield were very upset that Wisconsin Lutheran High School accepted any federal aid for, for um, uh, materials in their library, and they took a very rigid church, and, church against you know, separation view. And so we wanted to know about in Watertown. So the professor led the discussion, and one of my classmates says, we should just have absolutely nothing to do with the government. We should be as separate from them. You know, he was always saying we should be Amish. And I remember Professor Scharf just finally calmly waited, and he says, well, then you would have to start a Wells Fire Department because if your building goes on fire, you're looking to that. He said, you will operate as an agent of the state every time you perform a wedding, which was just a shock to them. And now we've become much more comfortable with 
uh, with our accepting aid from the state and expecting there will be this this kind of a synergy, not public so much. Mm-hmm. And that I don't think that means that someone has to fall one side or another, whether they support vouchers or not. I don't think that's what we're necessarily after here, although all my kids are on vouchers in sure. private schools. Um, but uh, I think it is a lens through which we can see how thinking changes on this. You know, in that regard, um, the church and state having common interests, well, you know, you think of Luther's appeal to the nobility that they start schools. You know, this is a central tenet of that. Could Luther imagine working with the state as the state is now? I don't know. You know, these become more more difficult issues, but I think it does highlight something that I, I think is very helpful from your paper, Mark, that the language of a strict separation of church and state is not necessarily at all what Luther had in mind with two kingdoms. Um, two spheres or two realms, if you were to draw these on the board, right, they, they cross over sometimes. Yeah. And, and the Christian... Um, even that judge who makes for a great dis- discussion question, right, there's there's places where it does cross over. Um, we live with a foot in each realm. It, it's not, and to avoid um, diminishing either in, in so doing. But, Mike, I think we both have cut you off now. Well, that's all right. Um, I don't think I can go back through all my thoughts, but that's all right. They weren't worth worthwhile anyway. Um, <clears throat> you know, to the, to the idea of, you know, they overlap and don't mix, Um you know, it's even more, you know, they can be <laughs> intertwined but not mixed. I mean, you can maybe even go that so far in, in some of these circumstances. It's difficult. And the, and, and we I do draw the two, you know, the two circles on, on the board when I teach this and say they, they should never mix. And then make the point that I think for, for Luther, especially at least for me, that a mixture of the two kingdoms is a mixture inevitably of law and gospel. That if the church is going to start doing the state's business, um, then the church is going to have an army like the Pope did at one time. And, and there's historical reasons for that. Nobody else could keep law and order perhaps at certain times. And so, but then the, the church becomes the law and the gospel is lost. And certainly um, the, the, the state shouldn't be in doing the church's business because the state can't just say, you're forgiven, right? There must be, there must be order. And uh, with, with the judge thing, I think Luther kind of had an interesting ethic um, about, uh, okay, so the, the hangman, it's always wrong to kill, but the executioner, the hangman, has a duty to kill, you know? And so the judge has a duty to do something that he as a Christian is barred from doing. I mean, he go, he, Luther goes very far. It's always wrong to kill. He doesn't say murder, or at least that translation I was thinking of, but it's always wrong to kill. But as an executioner, it is his duty to kill, and the same for a soldier, too. And so the ethical agent becomes the vocation, and not the person. But when you're talking about Kennedy in 1960, um, I, every time I think of that now, I also think of kind of a almost a throwaway phrase from Barack Obama when he was running for president the first time, I believe, and the whole Jeremiah Wright thing came out. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he had to throw his pastor under the bus because it came out um, that he had, in some sermons, had said some things that were anti-white, um, politically charged language. And Obama could have very easily just said, I don't like that guy. I don't know him. I wasn't even there at that sermon. I'm never going to talk to him again. But he said something very interesting, which was, I think, the polar opposite in some ways of what Kennedy said in Houston in 1960. And he said, I can't, 
I can't take him out of me. I can't, this is a part of who I am, the, this preaching that he gave me. I can't separate it. And for me, I heard that separation of, I can't separate who I am with my politics. And so when I, now I hear, okay, there's a strict separation from church and state, I say, not possible because you're still a Christian, even though you're uh, the president of the United States, or you're still a Muslim if you're those things. You can try to bend those and you can try not to mix them and you shouldn't try to mix them. But my worldview as a Lutheran Christian, da 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 da, my whole, I just can't undo that either. It's not so simple that you can just separate those two things. And it makes it a little bit more complicated. And so. Uh, the easy language of separation of two states instead of two kingdoms or, um, you know, any of that language that we're so quick to say, well, we shouldn't do this because of this very simple. It's just it's just never that well, simple. Well, I think Kennedy knew his audience in 1960. Oh, sure. he, said, he said absolutely what they wanted to hear. But I also think it's a reflection of him. I mean, some of the things that he said when he was president reflect the Catholic teaching that he had about social oh, social ministry. Yeah, when he yeah. when he talked about the uh, the uh, um, the things going on in Alabama and he said, This is as old as the scriptures and he would he would use that, that phraseology and and um, but I think he was a I, I don't know how to describe his Catholicism. I mean he was obviously cultural and part of his family, but I think he was more skeptical and obviously not nearly as devout in some ways as he Professed to be now. Who is the guy from Pennsylvania that is a Catholic? That ran for Rick Santorum. Yeah, Rick Santorum. The priest says the first time I heard Kennedy a clip of that, he says it made me want to throw up. So he was a Catholic who was much more eager to see church involved with state until the church wanted to start doing something he didn't like. And then Santorum kind of quickly said, why don't they just mind their own business? Because I think he had a Catholic teacher talk about caring for the poor and things like that. And so I anyway. think something with the overseas engagements we had going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, I think that he kind of p- picked and chose the issues he'd like to see the government involved in and others not. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, a couple things off what Mike said. I think first, you know, um, Obama was on to something with what he had to say, and I would agree with what you were bringing up, Mike. And in ethics, when I talk to the students, I'll often say, um, when we're in the civic realm, we're obviously informed by our religious views. But how, how we govern, and Luther even recognizes this with divorce laws and things like that, must recognize that we don't live in a country made only made up only of Christians. Okay? And so there will be times when we have to clearly make our case based on reason, natural law, things like that. But that doesn't mean we should be so naive as to think, or that we should even be so bold as to deny that how we get to our views isn't informed by the scriptures or where we hold are religiously, when it comes to the the crossover, um, and I think yes, the state is governed by the law and church by the gospel, uh, and there are problems when either tries to govern predominantly by the other. Um, I do think it's important to recognize that a lot of the crossover we recognize is stuff that the state saw value in what the church was doing, mm-hmm. hospitals, schools. Uh, and especially with the Protestant Reformation, that Protestantism ushers this in. In many ways, the, the modern social welfare state is born out of um, Reformation thought. The state sees that the church is running schools and says schools are good. In fact, Luther says schools are good for everyone. The state sees that the church is running hospitals or orphanages and says this is good for the good of citizen for good citizenship and citizenry, a healthy citizenry. 
And so I think there is going to be some natural crossover where the state says, you know, we want good citizens, and the, and the church says, so do we, and we also have a vested interest in teaching our students the truths of Scripture. Um, hospitals would be another one. How that can be done well, I think, becomes a question that always has to be wrestled with, and I think the big shift we've seen today is that Christianity is no longer, functionally speaking, the predominant starting point of people as they look at these things. We might still be majority Christian as far as what people answer on a survey, but even the majority of Christians are not going to answer a lot of things in a way that's primarily informed by their Christianity, is fair to say, I think. And, and so you get to now flashpoints on marriage, flashpoints on medical care and ethics, flashpoints on education. And uh, at the same time, the history of it is, in many ways, the church was doing these things, and the state said these are good. If that makes sense. Yeah, and 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 once you start the ch- the church starts doing those things in the public realm, the churches aren't necessarily going to agree. People with even within a church are, aren't necessarily going to agree on the right process. I mean, I I asked one time whether, you know, would you think it was a good social ministry of the church to hand out clean needles in a neighborhood? You're you're going to prolong a person's time of grace and you're going to, you know, prevent other health problems. So that was a pretty uncomfortable idea for most people. But again, you know, good, good-hearted good Christians can come to very different conclusions about what is good. I, you know, I come back to what you said about, about the, the, the state needs to do the job of the state. The hangman has to do his job. I, I find a lot of my students being a little confused on this on capital punishment, that, you know, because you have love and forgiveness, therefore the government should not uh, well, certainly should not administer the death penalty and maybe not even be so hard on people in general. And I said, well, I think our government is finding it impossible to be fair with the death penalty. That's a problem. But it has its job to do to maintain order. And and now this brings me to kind of an uncomfortable area, which is this college. I think sometimes in our great desire to be uh, talk about servant leadership and helping people having a Christian realm, we forget that there are also academic standards that should be expected. And you're not loving your student less when you fail him or her for failing to do academic work. In the end, we're, we're lying to them by giving them a diploma, and we're harming other diplomas by giving diplomas to people who have clearly not done their work, and we don't hold them to a standard. And I think that's a special temptation for those of us who are pastors, right, to want to— I don't know. I'm not tempted by that, too. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, to— to recognize that grading is the realm of the law, even though you do want to employ the gospel in your dealings with students, right, in your everyday dealings. Um, but, yeah, there is, uh, um, I, yes. I mean, I think that's the conversation we have to have here a bit more. Sure. Maybe maybe one thing to just, we're running out of time here a little bit, but uh, I've heard it, and it's just offhand, not necessarily in writing, but a criticism of uh, the Lutherans and their two-kingdom theology is, it's kind of a throwaway phrase, but there's one God in one kingdom. How can you have? How can you split God up? And 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 it's it's kind of snarky, but I think what they really mean is there's the sovereignty of God. It's over all. He owns all. And so how could how could there be two different things going on uh, in their mind? Uh, you know, uh, how could you? How could you say one thing over here in your church life and one thing over here as the judge? To use that example, that doesn't doesn't. And how could you? Why would you not want the government to mandate school prayer? Why would you not want you know? And and finally, my 
my contention with that is that it's really a misunderstanding of law and gospel, finally, um, that um, they're seeing the law and gospel kind of as almost the same thing here, right, instead of, instead of two separate doctrines. I think uh, another important thing to keep in mind, and this is beyond the scope of the paper, but I really don't know that there's ever been an irreligious state there's been non-Christian states, but I would say even the Soviet Union had its religion. Um, there, sometimes politics themselves is the religion. Who is the the German prime minister or president who said socialism is a religion? Uh, it um, when someone is without God or a God or a religion. Almost always, the civic realm gets imbued with religious purpose, language pomp, ceremony, um, legislation. Uh, and you look at, for instance, the Roman state, we might think, well, Rome, you know, was was not Christian or monotheistic, but it had civil religion. You didn't have to believe the emperor was God to to, to offer incense, but you, right, you were going to offer the incense. And, uh, and that a helpful reminder for that hopefully will be, I think, two things. A, we always need to be careful to ask if the state is becoming our religion. Um, there are some Christians who will get much more worked up about something in the civic realm than they will about something with doctrine or practice or, say, the gospel in their church. Um, and then I think, secondly, to remember the the importance of the church with the state as well is that I would hold that those can govern best um, who don't have to find their ultimate or purpose in governing, um, who can go in and recognize governing for governing and do it for the good of their neighbor because their ultimate purpose, meaning identity, is outside of that in their baptism, in the gospel and grace. And I think that's something we've maybe lost in appreciation for, um, that when we want to discuss politics or engage in the civic realm or even serve, which is a good and noble thing, we're going to do so best when we're freed from that being ultimate for us. Um, the, you know, the end of the church is not on, on the line. Jesus kind of says it's never on the line. Um, and uh, and therefore keep law and gospel separate too. Uh, that's the last thing I guess I kind of have, and I don't know if that made any sense. But oh, It did. I think uh, we'll give... Uh... Uh, mark the last word, but then we really need to be done. We're going. We're going long today. <laughs> I don't know that I have a last word. Um, I think the topic is more, in some ways, more complex uh, for Lutherans living in the United States today. We we are never, we're never going to be the big shot on the block. It's never going to be fifty one percent Lutheran. And sometimes our evangelical friends are kind of surprised that we don't want everybody to. That we, that we aren't more in favor of prayer in public school or other actions which kind of impose our Christianity. Well, I think we've been in the position where we never expected to be the big kid on the block, and we aren't necessarily going to vote for those things. But I think two-kingdom thinking is pretty foreign in a lot of evangelical places. It's it's a Christian nation, and they bemoan that we've fallen under 50% now of the country being Protestant, so what are we going to do? Yeah, Marina, I won't endorse everything in the book, but I just read... Uh up on the shelf there, the end of white Christian America. And it's about how, you know, kind of mainline 
American Protestantism, which tended to be white, right? Um, kind of those days have passed and waned and the different reactions people are having to that. And it, it was an interesting read and it led me to question a lot of my own um, presuppositions that come into stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, I guess, you know, Mike wants to get done. He's looking real antsy. He's got he's got stuff to do, I suppose. But Mark, uh, we, we've covered a lot. We've gone everywhere from uh, common seminary experiences to uh, the end of white Christian America. And in the meanwhile, uh, that's a lot for people to process, but what would you say is, uh, is the main thing they can do? Let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a jank. I set them up another round. I set them up another round.